very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. It's time that you give yourself the gift of truth. What is the truth? You know that I don't want to believe, I want to know. And that is why tonight we have someone on the trail of the truth, specifically on the trail of the Nephilim. Tonight's special guest is L.A. Marzulli, an author, lecturer, and filmmaker. He has penned eight books, including the Nephilim trilogy, which made the CBA bestseller list. He received an honorary doctorate for the, for the series from his mentor, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. He was the provost at Pacific International University. His new series, On the Trail of the Nephilim, is a full-color, oversized book which uncovers startling evidence that there has been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. Tonight, we discuss Volume 2. Marzulli is a frank supernaturalist who has lectured on the subjects of UFOs, the Nephilim, and ancient prophetic texts, presenting his exhaustive research at conferences and churches, as well as appearances and interviews on numerous national and international radio and television programs. L.A. is on the trail, and he's with us for the first time. To learn more about L.A. Marzulli and his work, visit his website at lamarzulli.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Malibu, California, I'm privileged to welcome L.A. Marzulli. Hello, L.A., and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mel. And by the way, that's lamarzulli.net. That's the website, lamarzulli.net. Great, great. lamarzulli.net, not .com. Perfect. Well, L.A., it, it's I don't know why I haven't had you on the show uh, before. I saw your presentation at the UFO Congress last year, and I thought we need to have L.A. here. As I mentioned before, on your book, you have a lot of our, our friends, uh, some of them are no longer with us, but mm. their memory uh, survives with us. Why are you on the trail of the Nephilim? Well, simply put, it, it basically goes back to uh, the biblical narrative and what we find written thousands of years ago, uh, specifically in the Torah, which talks about this seed war between two entities. And let me preface, you know, your listeners, so they understand that we're not talking, there's a lot of religious institutions out there, and that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the supernatural. When, when one begins to crack open those ancient prophetic texts, 
specifically in the Torah and in the Tanakh and elsewhere, one begins to find that what is there uh, is the manifestation of supernatural entities. And there seems to be, according to this text, there seems to be a war that's been going on in an, in an unseen dimension literally for millennia. And we get glimpses of this war through the text, but we also get this warning in the Genesis account telling us that your seed, there's three people in this, actually four people in this little settee. You've got Adam and Eve, supposedly, and I believe that that's literal. You've got the Most High God of the Bible, and then you've got this other character, the fallen angel, Satan. And they're all there together, and most of us know the story, but, but most of us don't understand the next passage, which is sets up the rest of history. It says, the Most High God says to the fallen angel, to the fallen cherub, your seed will be an enmity with the seed of the woman. That's the whole ball of wax, Mel, right there. And so what this, what this instigates is a seed war between a fallen angelic being. And we need to understand something. Uh, when I say a fallen angelic being, in, in the classic sense, we are talking about an extraterrestrial in the classic sense. Now, I don't mean it the way that, let's say, the ancient aliens um, program, with all due respect to the guys in Giorgio, would, would couch it. But in a, in a classic sense, a fallen angelic being or any type of angelic being, by the way, angel comes from angelos, which just means messenger. We don't know what they're really called. They're called the host of heaven. Um, they, they dwell in another uh, dimension. And whenever these guys show up, man, I mean, they, they, are, they are super intelligent. They have power that just blows us away. They can manipulate matter, time, space, energy in ways that we cannot. In other words, in the words of Dr. Jacobs, uh, they operate in what he calls future physics. And they are. They do. Um, and this is just status quo for them. And we read about their, them, these, these entities doing this all through these ancient texts. So with that in mind, we skip over to another chapter, Genesis 6. And we read uh, not only in the Genesis book, but in the book called the Book of Enoch, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and is now part of a wonderful new tome, which I just received, called the uh, Sefer. And the Book of Enoch is now included um, in the canon of, of ancient biblical texts, which I find extremely exciting. Of course, some people will take great uh, umbrage with that, and that's fine. But I think that the, the Book of Enoch has a lot of merit to it, and at least should be read. The bottom line is the Book of Enoch in Genesis 6, the accounts there parallel each other, and they talk about uh, these entities. Let's just call them entities because that's a word that that most people can kind of you know grasp onto without any type of uh, religious connotations. Uh, these entities come down to earth, according to Enoch. They land on Mount Hermon, and uh, it's not a weekend frat party. They're here for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they do the unthinkable. These entities take human wives and they go into them in the biblical sense, and they produce a hybrid being known as the Nephilim, or the Nephilim, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And the Nephilim uh, are over the earth, and these are hybrid beings. In the, again, in the classic sense, they are a hybrid being. They're part human, part uh, entity, and uh, they're not supposed to be here. And the whole reason for me being on the trail 
is that our, my hypothesis, our hypothesis is simply this, that 3,500 years ago, when Joshua and Caleb, two Israelites, went into what is known as the Levant or the Promised Land, they came back and their report, which is again recorded in ancient prophetic texts, tell us that the Nephilim were there. And our hypothesis is simply this, that there were many different Nephilim tribes in that area. And as the conquest of Canaan began to happen, of these hybrid beings, these Nephilim tribes left the area. They fled the area. Some of them perhaps went northward into Europe uh, and wound up in the Americas, specifically in the Ohio Valley. Others sailed by boat out of the Mediterranean Sea and wound up in the Gulf of Mexico and fanned out from there. Others perhaps went out the Red Sea and traveled across the Pacific. The bottom line is that this is true, Mel. If the hypothesis is true, then we should be seeing evidence of this. And that is why I am on the trail. Because what we have discovered, while not conclusive yet, seems to point back to our hypothesis that, in fact, um, entities, which I would call Nephilim or Nephilim, were in the Americas. And in, in, in uh, volume Amitrail or Amitrail of Nephilim Volume 2, I was out in Catalina and I discovered uh, several photographs which seemed to uh, give us evidence, hardcore photographic evidence, that something anomalous was uncovered uh, around 19, uh, 1919 by an amateur archaeologist, Rob Glidden. By the way, the History Channel's uh, recent program, In Search of the Lost Giants, featured me on this because I was the one, this is my intellectual property, I, it was my discovery, and I told the Vieira brothers about this, and so they had me come on via a Skype interview, and uh, that was in their uh, season finale, and I was happy to do it. But um, that's why I'm on the trail, because it points back to the biblical narrative, and if we can substantiate that as being true, then it begs the question, wow, if that part of the biblical narrative is true, what other parts are? Or perhaps Maybe the whole thing is true. And then it gets into other issues, which we don't won't go into right now, but perhaps later. And the Ralph Glidden story is incredible, and I want to definitely dive into it later. Sure. But a quick parenthesis. Our listeners may have heard, uh, this may sound unrelated, President Obama referring to ISIS, the terrorist group, as ISIL. That L in the end is for Levant, the Canaan-Israel uh, area, which I wonder why he's always referring to it that way. But why do you think the Book of Enoch was rejected from the Bible? Well, it, it really, it wasn't necessarily, well, okay, it was rejected in, in, in the canonization of the Bible when a bunch of guys got together around 325 and said, okay, well, this book is good, this book is not. And the reason for this is the Book of Enoch was in and out of favor literally for hundreds of years. Um, it, it is quoted 70 times in the Tanakh. It is referenced several places in what the Christians would call, or I would call also, because I am a Christian, the New Testament. But um, the Book of Enoch is extremely controversial, and it deals with passages which I believe that some of the folks who were in that council just did not want to deal with. And frankly, we see the same uh, the same or a different incarnation, but the same mentality uh, in, in modernity that don't want to deal with this either. In other words, they, there's a group of people out there that are anti-supernaturalist. In other words, there is no supernatural. Uh, 
The events in the biblical narrative are just superstition. They were stupid people who didn't know what they were looking at. All this can be explained by science. And, and I'm saying, well, no, folks, that's not the way it works. Um, and we get this when we when we hop over to the alien abduction phenomena where people are floated through glass windows and the windows are not opened and they are levitated off their bed and space, time, matter and energy is manipulated. Isn't that interesting? And again, this points in my research, it points back to um, this fallen host of another dimension which comes to Earth and is, is creating some sort of a breeding program. Interestingly, Mel, there's a prophecy which is about 2000 years old uttered by a rabbi by the name of Yeshua. And Yeshua tells us that um, it will be like the days of Noah when he returns. So that statement is very pregnant with meaning and is, and is loaded. It has to point you back to Noah to see what distinguishes and differentiates the days of Noah from any other time in history. And of course, that is the presence of the B'nai Ha Elohim, these fallen angelic hosts of another dimension, which uh, incarnate or come down, not incarnate, but come on this planet and begin to have sex with the women creating this hybrid being known as the Nephilim. And what I find so interesting about the abduction phenomenon and the consequent so-called breeding program in, in ufology and the UFO phenomena is that it parallels very closely what we see in the days of Noah, except there's another prophecy. I'm sure some of your listeners' heads are spinning right now um, about all this prophetic stuff, but this is about 2,500 years old, this prophecy, which says their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but will not cleave to them. And this goes right back to my earlier statement about that seed war. Their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but will not cleave to them. What the heck does that mean? It means simply this. Their seed, whose seed? And that's what that's a loaded question. Their seed is the seed of the fallen ones. Okay? That's who's their seed. Will mingle with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave. And the word cleave is the, is the word that we get in, for marriage. And that's what happened in the days of Noah. These, these fallen angels came and they took wives. They chose wives, married them, went into them, and had progeny, children by them. Notice the Nephilim. Well, skip forward to modern day, and this is exactly what we see. We see that their seed is mingling with the seed of men, but there's no marriage contract. They're taking people. They're abducting people. They're implanting people. Um, they're taking the fetuses very early on. Uh, and there's a breeding program going on, but there's no marriage. So you start putting all this stuff together, and it, it does make one's head spin because it's it deals with it deals with areas that most human beings don't want to go to because it's there's no there's there's nothing to to base it on. Most people have never dealt with this stuff. I've been researching this stuff for like 30 years. So I remember when I came up to the uh, to the line uh, on some of these issues. And I just sat there on, dancing in front of that line for maybe six months before I intellectually could cross it. I, I couldn't get there. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was I was so stunned by what I was reading or discovering or looking at. I just I could I had no there was no paradigm for for which I could embrace what I was looking at. Uh, a good example of this is the the alien abduction phenomena. When I read Dr. Jacobs' books, which by the way are a must read if anyone interested sure. at all in what's going on. I, I remember reading it chapter by chapter very slowly, putting some of it down, not picking the book up again for several weeks because it was so troubling. 
I mean, when you read that book for the first time and you don't know anything about the abduction phenomena and you start reading about the way people are taken and you, and you read um, what they're saying under hypnosis, and we need to declare something, clarify something. Hypnosis is not the stage hypnosis that people see at, you know, at carnivals or whatever. This is when a person is just relaxed. They're just, and, and it takes time for that person to get into that state. They're in a very relaxed state. And in that, they can start to remember. That's what that's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about stage hypnosis. We need to clarify that. But when I'm reading the reading the testimony and the transcripts by Dr. Jacobs, extremely troubling. I mean, very, very troubling encounters, very troubling testimonies, gut-wrenching, and 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 frankly, uh troublesome to the point where I couldn't read it in one sitting. Like I normally read a lot of research books, you know couple hundred pages at, at a sitting or whatever, a hundred pages at a sitting and, you know, move on to something else, depending on what it is. Um, some books are more easily accessible than others. The bottom line is Jacob's book took me weeks to read because I was, I was so bothered by it. It really, it really upset me uh, to read. I remember when I sat down with Karina Sables, who was a lifelong abductee, and I heard Karina's story. And it just makes you it makes it makes you angry because she's being taken against her will. She's being probed. Uh, she's she's more than likely impregnated. Probably the the child has been taken from her at some point. We're dealing with a, a woman right now who was impregnated, and around twelve weeks, uh, she believes she was abducted, and the uh, the fetus was taken. And we're trying to to work on some of that to 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 validate um, you know to vet it. Uh, to validate the experience and uh, and talk more about it. Uh, but this stuff is going on. And so, you know, we I, I'm kind of off on a rabbit trail here. The, the bottom line is when one begins to study this and 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 we begin to look at at what is what is happening uh, both in antiquity and modernity, there is a link. And that link goes back to what I said earlier with the Genesis three account. Their seed, your seed uh, will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. There's a seed war that's happening, and this is not going away. And I believe it's really manifesting uh, in spades right now on our planet. I'm so glad, L.A., that uh, you're discussing this because you're making that connection with the alien uh, aliens and antiquity. Because most people think of Roswell as the precursor in 1947, or even Aurora, Colorado in 1897. But, you know, we have paintings depicting visitation and even hieroglyphs or petroglyphs depicting encounters thousands of years ago. Absolutely. Um, this has been going on for quite some time. It's interesting that, uh, you know, you talk about the petroglyphs. Um, and I've, I've been to Navajo and, and, and Hopi places and been taken back by by elders into places where most people don't get to go and was able to look at at some of the petroglyphs and um there are many with six fingers i've i've sat down and spoken with um native american elders and various tribes talking about the red-haired cannibalistic giants many of them with six fingers uh and this this all hails back to the nephilim the nephilim uh, that seemed to have been all through the Americas, perhaps South America, all through Europe, and they were here. They were here for thousands of or thousands of years ago. And what's amazing is all these oral traditions talk about it. Why is it that all Native American tribes, most Native American tribes, talk about the six-fingered red-haired cannibals, the giants that were here? 
And all this is in the new book. You know, we, we showed, I only showed one of the petroglyphs, but it's a giant. And, and whether it has six fingers or not, I don't know that particular one, but there are other, other petroglyphs which I have seen with six fingers. Uh, down in Peru, we found something really interesting uh, at the uh, Maria Reich Museum. Maria Reich was the woman that was responsible uh, for putting the Nazca lines, as we know them today, on the map and preserving the Nazca lines. At one point, they were going to just bulldoze the area and put condos, literally. And uh, really? there are it's unbelievable. There are hundreds and hundreds of these lines uh, all through the Nazca Plateau. Um, some of them extend for miles, and and they can be seen best from the air. But also, you can see them from the ground, uh, not as easily as from the air, but you can see them from the ground. And and it's very enigmatic, and not one not one theory is is really um, applicable uh, to. It's kind of solving the mystery. There are there are at least four different theories as to who did them, and perhaps the cultures overlapped. Uh, Brian Forrester in his book on Nazca believes that the the Paracas were the first people to, and the Paracas people were enigmatic in themselves to actually draw the lines, and then cultures that came later. When I was at Nazca uh, and and was standing in the Maria Reich Tower looking down at the lines. Um, from a tower, you, you you could see very easily how they could construct that. They could they could make that work. Uh, it, it's not so much of a mystery. And yet, on the other hand, you look at the long straight lines which go on for miles, and that begs the question: Who wakes up on a Monday morning and decides to do this? For what purpose are they doing it? And that's why it gets into some people like von Donneken go back to the ancient alien theory, which I completely dismiss. Others go back to Maria Reich believed that it was um, some sort of a solar calendar or, or talked about pre precision and uh, the equinoxes. And that may be uh, other, others will posit that this all has to do with the underground waterways, which, again, I, I was there in Nazca. You can see the wells the, uh, for yourself. And I've walked down into those wells. It's incredible. But in the Maria Reich Museum, uh, one of the guys we were with, it was either Corey or Aaron Bajork. I forget which one, or maybe both of them together. But uh, let's say Aaron, L.A., come over here, look at this. And there was a piece of pottery, a very large um, object, oh, maybe 18 inches high. And on that was hand-painted the, the picture of a six-fingered giant who had been decapitated. Well, the six-fingered giant who had been decapitated was very uh, largely endowed. Let's just put it that way. And they made a point of showing that um, on the pottery. But the giant had six fingers, and they decapitated him. And what was interesting about this, this goes back to the biblical narrative once again with David and Goliath. Goliath, in my opinion, was a Nephilim. Hmm. What does David do after he hits him in the in the forehead with a sling? With with a sling, you know, takes his sling and hits him in the forehead with a rock. First thing he does is he runs up, takes Goliath's sword, and decapitates him. Now that's bizarre. That's bizarre. And there's another um, uh, painting I've seen where I think it's the Aztecs are hauling away a large giant. They, you know, they've killed this giant and these, they, you can see the ropes and it's like, you know, they got 10 guys hauling this thing. Uh, we get from the early Spanish explorers, the conquistadors, the uh, legends of giants everywhere. I mean, this stuff is everywhere. And what, what sort of, drives me nuts is that 
there seems to be a deliberate obfuscation uh, to cover this stuff up. And I mean, my research is pointing to a deliberate obfuscation by our government, quite frankly, uh, the Smithsonian, for instance, uh, we have report after report where the Smithsonian is called in to confiscate or take these bones, which are nine feet, 10 feet, 11 feet, sometimes taller, and they're never seen or heard of again. And when, when we're asked about this, you get this, you get your, you're sort of laughed at. Oh, well, those people back then didn't know how to measure. And that's a direct quote from a tenured archaeologist at a major university. And I, and I said to the person, I said, are you trying to tell me that a medical doctor in the 1920s, because that's when this one particular uh, giant was exhumed and it was well over nine feet. And the doctor who had been trained medically, uh, remember, human anatomy hasn't changed that much. Thank you very much. And a skeleton less than 100 years ago would be pretty much the same as a skeleton today. And that doctor was a, was was trained. He was um perhaps not in forensic anthropology, but he certainly knows anatomy. And he knows that you can measure a femur, which is from a disarticulated skeleton. You can have a femur bone, which is the thigh bone. You can have a femur and you can measure the femur. And knowing, knowing that measurement, you can extrapolate the height. There's an equation one can use and you can extrapolate the height. And the doctor wrote, I measured the femur and I was taken aback by how large this thing was. And we're looking at at least, you know, a nine, 10, 11 footer. Um, all that is in on the trail of volume one. But when I presented that to this tenured archaeologist at a major university, the person said to me, that medical doctor back then, and I quote, did not know how to measure. That's all they've got, Mel. That's their answer. But because they have their titles, most people say, wait a second, but he has a title. He went to academia. You know, and this is one of the, 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 the drives that I have. The, the drivers for me is the deliberate obfuscation. This is why I'm so compelled in getting to the truth. Because, For, for example, a few years ago, a uh, one of our listeners, his father lives in Iran, and he sent me some pictures, and I'll send them to you after the show, oh, of, of uh, an earthquake that happened. I've forgotten what part of Iran, but a, a city was on earth after the earthquake, and they unearthed women, about nine feet tall, a set of women, skeletons. So, again, if you have the skeletons not only in Iran, but you have them in Catalina Island and elsewhere, why is it that academia clearly is obfuscating our past? Mel, when you talked about the skeletons in Iran, you've got to send those to me. I've got to look at them. And if you have a contact, please, please send me the contact information. I will. Iran and the Middle East is Nephilim central, and people need to understand this. It's Nephilim central. And this would not surprise me at all. Um, we've heard stories, and we keep hearing more and more stories of a very large skeletal remains being taken up. And depending on where they are, all the, all the governments do exactly the same thing. They rush in, cover it up. The national security can't look at anything. You say anything, well, you'll arrest you, blah, 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 blah. And the stuff is confiscated and never seen again. There is there is a deliberate conspiracy, and I mean conspiracy, to obfuscate, deliberately obfuscate information, to make it unavailable. And what's so great about what I do, um, look, I have two honorary doctorates that were presented to me. And I'm really proud of that. I've written nine books. It's got to count for something. Am I accredited anywhere? No. Do I have any formal education? No. Have I read over a thousand books, 2000 books? Yes. Am I an avid reader? Yes. 
Do I talk to people all the time who are experts in the field? Absolutely. I have a question. I get on the phone. I Google some people. I get information. That's that's what we're supposed to do, you know? And all I can tell you is this, that because I'm not tied to a university, because I'm not... Um, I'm not threatened or my tenure at a university or college or, or job isn't threatened. I'm able to pursue the truth. I'm able to go where the evidence takes us. I'm free to do that. And yet in, in a lot of the science community and other places, let me tell you a story. This is, this is true. Okay. And I, and I'm in a, with all, a lot of people wouldn't give me the same respect, but I, I, you know, let's take the high road here. I'm going to, I'm going to, change names and places and dates so you'll never know who it is and where it is and what place I'm talking about. But I was at a a a place and we'll just call it uh, a museum. Okay, that, that's all we'll say about it. It was a museum. And this museum uh, had donated to it um, several decades ago a collection of elongated skulls that came from the Paracas area, came from Peru. Now, that in itself blew me away, that they had these in the Americas. And I went there, and I spoke to several people that were uh, employed by the museum and uh, who informed me that all this was cradle headboarded. And they were making the case. And when they were done, I took my laptop out. And in about 25 minutes, the room was dead silent because they realized that their arguments just fell their own weight. First of all, Mel, we've got an elongated skull from 1842, and this is what was written. And let me let me double back here. The this this battle has been raging in academia literally since the last since two centuries ago, since the middle of the 1800s, 1840, 1850, and uh, many academics would go to these, go to Peru or South America and see these elongated skulls and go, well, all these were manipulated. This was cradle headboarding where they bind the heads of these infants and create these shapes. But then that begs the question, why are they doing this? What's so desirable about being a conehead? Why are you doing this to your kid? <laughs> right. You know, why, why do you want your kid to be a conehead? I mean, it was like, what? And then the other people on the side, on the other side of the fence, were saying, "No, some of this stuff is cradle headboarded. We get it, but not all of it. Some of it's genetic." So in 1842, these explorers are down there, and they find this. This is a quote, and this is in the book *On the Trail of a Nephilim*, Volume Two. We ourselves have observed the fact that in many mummies of children of tender age, who, although they had cloths about them, were yet without any vestige or appearance of pressure of the cranium. More still, the same formation of the head presents itself in children yet unborn. And of this truth, we had convincing proof in the sight of a fetus enclosed in the womb of a mummy of a pregnant woman, which we found in a cave two leagues from Tarma, and which is at this moment in our collection. And in 1842, when these guys wrote this, there's no photography. So they either they were drawing or they had a professional artist with them. And I include the drawing in my book. There's a frontal view and a side view, and this this fetus enclosed in a mummy, and the mummy the, mummy, the woman is about seven months pregnant. Um, you can't elongate its skull, or you cannot elongate a skull in the womb of a pregnant mother. You just you just can't do that. It's not going to happen. And when they open her up, because it's a mummy, they wanted to see what the baby looked like, and the baby 
the fetus had an elongated skull. It is our contention, based on preliminary DNA evidence taken out by the late Lloyd Pye, and I will read that to you. Whatever the sample labeled 3A, this is from Lloyd Pye, and the geneticist who, who, who took the sample from Lloyd Pye, it had mitochondrial DNA with mutations unknown in any human, primate, or animal known so far. The data is very sketchy. A lot of sequencing still needs to be done to recover the complete mitochondrial DNA sequence, but a few fragments I was able to sequence from the sample indicate that if these mutations were whole, we are dealing with a new human-like creature very distant from Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. I am not sure it will even fit in the known evolutionary tree. The question is that they were so different they could not interbreed with humans, breeding within their small population that may have degenerated due to inbreeding. That would explain buried children. They were either low or not viable. Now, this is like a smoking gun for us. And granted, it's preliminary mitochondrial DNA. And this is why we need to get the samples. And we're on this like white on rice. But why is it that archaeologists and anthropologists aren't, aren't on the next plane to Peru to procure their own samples? This is groundbreaking stuff. It's groundbreaking. It's like we all want to know our origins. What's really going on here? Who are we? Where are we? Where do we come from? What is all this? Is there any meaning? Is, do we carry on after we die? Is there a God? Is there a supreme being? Did all this just happen? Were we, were we seated here by extraterrestrials as the guys, you know, panspermia and, and the guys on ancient aliens are always, are always telling us? Or is there another dimension? Are we at some sort of a cosmic war in, in another dimension, which is now spilling out? I mean, when you look at the complexity of a deoxyribonucleic double helix of life, the DNA molecular structure, it's absolutely astounding. There's no way this thing just happened. You know, and, and we know that, again, the biblical narrative points back and says that everything creates according to its own kind. That's right in the book of Genesis. Well, what we see is exactly that. We see whales producing whales. Whales don't produce hummingbirds. And hummingbirds don't produce, you know, penguins. And you can do it over and over and over and over and over again. But because of their DNA sequencing, a hummingbird is going to produce a hummingbird. And a penguin is not going to produce a bullfrog. And on and on it goes. There's a coding that's there. And that coding, look, even, even the co-discoverer of DNA, Watson and Crick. Crick was a vexed man, the co-discoverer of DNA. Because he looks at this and he goes, and I'm quoting, he says, no matter how much billions of years of prebiotic sop, there's no way you can create just a single strand of, of, of proteins. It's just not going to happen. He was, he was stunned. And you know what his answer was, Mel? Hmm. Well, and this is circular reasoning. Well, and this is exactly what Richard Dawkins says, panspermia. Maybe there's another race of extraterrestrials out there who somehow evolved to a very high state of civilization and then created life as we know it in a lab and seated us here. That's called panspermia. The movie Prometheus two summers ago dealt with this theory. And that's what, right. that's what a lot of people believe. And that's fine. You can believe that. But the problem with that is it's circular reasoning. Well, who the heck produced the aliens? Where do they come from? And it goes around and around and around. If we're all intellectually honest, and I'm being intellectually honest here, no one knows. We have no idea who made us, where we are, where we're going, how all this works. We can believe in panspermia or we can believe in the creation myth that we find in the Bible, which points to a creator, intelligent design. And they're both science fiction, but I believe in the latter. I believe that the biblical narrative happens to be the correct one because I'm a Frank supernaturalist. Or 
some people believe in Darwin. And as you said, is if it's a code, a penguin stays a penguin, a monkey stays a monkey. <laughs> but you know, all these people that are attacking, and I'm going to remember, gosh, my last conversation with Lloyd Pye and even Zachariah Sitchin, they get these self-appointed heresy hunters that attack them. Instead of getting on the first plane, as you said, archaeologists going to Peru and finding all the stuff, they just start attacking with their academia basis. But just one thing that I want to say, and and based on what you just said about the baby having the elongated skull inside the womb, that to me is a smoking gun. But could it be also, and some people may say, could it have been possible that it was the birth canal that, let's say that giants procreated with our women. And it's like having a, gosh, you know, a, a chihuahua dog procreating with a German shepherd or vice versa. The birth canal being so, so constricted, could it have compressed the, the, the head coming through the birth canal? Well, no, because the fetus was only seven months old. Right. So the fetus was still in the womb, was not in the birth canal. Right, right, exactly. I mean, not knowing this part, I was thinking, could it be that? that the baby was so big that it was constricted. Right. Now, the other part is, why is it that some of the children were uh, the, 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 the compression in their, in their heads, they tried to emulate these beings? Why was that? Well, isn't that interesting? Why, why the elongated skull? Is that one of the products of, look, if a Nephilim were on the earth, and if they looked this way, if one of their genetic characteristics might have been an elongated skull, then this was desirable. And for whatever reason, people began to emulate it because it was a sign of royalty, power. Perhaps these Nephilim could do a lot more than what we think. They, mm. they might have, in fact, Native American legends talk about the giants who were able to uh, predict the future and read your mind. Now, you know, that's Native American oral tradition. And academia looks at that and just scoffs and laughs. Um, I happen to believe it. <laughs> I happen to believe the oral tradition. And I think that when they tell us that these beings could do this, I think we would uh, be smart to listen to them because they were here a lot longer than we were here. And they were in the same place for hundreds and hundreds of years and dealt with these entities. And, you know, we see the vestiges of it all through the Americas. And I want to address, you know, the armchair critics. I'm, I'm constantly being slammed by people. And I, I just like, you know what? There's no point in rebutting because the moment we do, we give these people a platform and there's no point in giving them a, a platform. So what I do is, and, and this is what we constantly do, we go out and we do the research and we're in the field. And it's amazing how the armchair critics aren't in the field. For instance, about six, seven years ago, when I was talking about the so-called alien implant, uh, there was a group of people that were uh, writing very nasty things about me and saying that this was all just a bunch of hooey. Well, enter Watchers 7 and Watchers 8. We have eight Watchers in our Watchers series. My good friend and co-producer Richard Shaw and I, it's guerrilla filmmaking at its best. Um, people hold Watchers parties all around the country. Um, in fact, you can, you can download the first four on YouTube right now. Uh, you know, as downloads, which is pretty cool. We just got that up and running. But when we did Watchers 7 and Watchers 8 now, we were contacted by a man who claimed to have been abducted and implanted. Okay, you know, that's that's fine. So what have you been smoking? 
And, you know, the critics will just sit there and laugh at that, right? But we didn't laugh at that because we're in the field and we're looking and, and trying to do real research. And so we did some preliminary questions with this man and we, who we'll call Bill. And we said, Bill, you know, what, what's your story? And he said, well, when I was around five years old, they came to get me. And the first time uh, they came, I fought them off. But the second time I wasn't able to fight them off. And uh, this time I went right up through the ceiling of the room. And I remember my pajamas flapping on me because I went up so fast. And he was then implanted. I said, well, how do you know you're implanted? He says, well, um, I've got an X-ray. And he produced the X-ray. And the reason why he had an X-ray is he was riding his motorcycle and excruciating pain shot through his leg. I mean, so much so that he ditched his motorcycle and rolled on the ground. That's how bad it was. It happened twice. And after the second time, he got an X-ray and they found a metallic object. Well, this is when Dr. Lear, Dr. Roger Lear, our, our good friend and colleague and all this, yeah. was still alive. And so we took him over to Roger's and we did our own X-ray. And sure enough, there was a metallic object in the men's below his below his knee. And we took a Gauss meter, which Dr. Lear had in his office. A Gauss meter measures the magnetic field. Richard Shaw's camera fully charged with a battery, a battery fully charged, was about 10.0 milligauss on the Gauss meter. This little object about the size of a pencil lead was registering 8.0 to 8.5 milligauss. How is that possible? It gave out a radio frequency of about 330 gigahertz. How is that possible? A stud finder proved that there was something metal. That was the first visit. Then we took him two weeks later and got a CAT scan done. Lo and behold, there's a metallic object about four inches below the man's knee. Then we took him to an ultrasound. We took him to the surgeon uh, who was going to take out, extract the implant. And we want to make sure this thing is there. We take the x-ray and the, and the doctor... The surgeon looks at the x-ray, places a little dot where he thinks the implant is, takes the wand from the ultrasound, squirts the magic gel there. Less than two minutes, he finds the implant. Okay, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll take this baby out. So why is it a metallic object gives off 8.5 milligauss? Why is it sending or giving off a radio frequency in the microwave spectrum of 330 gigahertz? What the heck is that all about? We don't know. All right. But this is hardcore physical evidence that it's on film, and the skeptic, what's he going to say? We're making this stuff up? That's basically all they can say. But we're not making this stuff up, and we're there doing this. So the, the time comes to remove the implant. We're in the surgery, uh, surgical theater. Dr. Roger Lear is there. Dr. Matriciana is there. He's the head surgeon. Lear is assisting. Three film crews are filming this thing. We got 15 other witnesses in a room watching it all, all the proceedings on an HD video monitor. We got nurses and staff and, you know, the whole retinue of people running around. And we got the patient, Bill, who's got the implant in him. So Matriciano does the same thing, takes the x-ray, makes a little mark where he thinks the implant is, squirts the magic gel on the man's leg. But here's where we go off the rails, Mel. For the next hour and 20 minutes, Dr. Matriciano goes over the same three-inch by eight-inch strip of flesh on this guy's leg. And he can't find the implant. It's not there. <clears throat> we take the Gauss meter. All this is on film. Take the Gauss meter, which registered 8.0, flat line. Gauss meter is not registering anything, okay, on this guy. 
Can't find it. We take the stud finder, which is now going off everywhere on the guy's body. It's like, what is going on? At this point, after an hour, 15 hour, 20 minutes, Dr. Matriciana turns to Dr. Roger Lear and says, Raj, maybe we should get another x-ray. At this moment, I get the little tap on the shoulder from the spirit of Yeshua, and, and I get a very strong message, and it's, you need to pray, and you need to pray now. Now, when I say pray, some people will roll their eyeballs, but that's okay, roll them, but this is what I did. I said, hey, guys, out loud. I said, hey, guys, this might sound real weird, but I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do it now because I was coming against a supernatural stronghold. This is what I, this is what I said, Mel. I said, Father, if there are supernatural forces which are cloaking this device, I pray that you would break the power and do it soon. Now, less than two minutes later, the object, the implant, comes up on the ultrasound screen like it had been cloaked. It just appears from nowhere. And the doctor is taken aback so much so that he keeps taking the wand on and off, on and off, trying to figure out why is it working now? The moment was not lost on anybody in the room. I talked to Dr. Roger Lear two days later because we were in seal lab with the implant. And I said, Raj, I hope what happened on Saturday didn't escape you. And he looked at me with his eyes wide open. He said, LA, <clears throat> I now believe there's a supernatural component to the UFO phenomenon. And I'm going to tell Whitley Strieber about it. Whether Raj ever got to talk to Whitley about it, I don't know. Whitley was at Roger's funeral. We never got a chance to touch base. But for Roger to say that is huge because we changed his paradigm now. And that's what's important. He now realized that there was a supernatural uh, paradigm, a supernatural, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Element, a supernatural element to the phenomenon which had not been there before in, in his in his worldview. And now he realized that, oh my gosh, one one prayer changed it. And there was no, you know, no priest with a funny garment with an incense denture going domini, domini, domini. None of that, Mel. There was just a very short, succinct request to the to the God of the universe, in my opinion. And I just said, look, if there are supernatural forces which are cloaking a device, I pray that you would break that power. Less than two minutes later, the object shows up in the guy's leg. And, you know, the skeptic, well, a coincidence, how I, you know, whatever you want to say. But for the people in the room and the fact that I got tapped on the shoulder and was told specifically to do that, here's the deal now. We're dealing with wickedness and malevolent forces in unseen places. That's what's going on here. You know, and these guys and you can say, well, that's your opinion. OK, it's my opinion, but I'm stuck with it. But here's the deal. When you take a five year old against their wishes and you implant them, that's not a good thing, Mel. It's not. That's called kidnapping in every single culture on this planet. That's kidnapping. And then you terrorize them while you're doing it. It's not a good thing. It's not. That's why and I have a hard time with some researchers who say, all aliens are benevolent. Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle. There's good and bad everywhere. But when you have cattle that you have to, you know, brand, what different? What is the difference if we supposedly have free will of all these people that supposedly are doing it for the benefit of humanity to, to abduct you without your knowledge, to, to brand you, to implant you, to, I mean, what Whitley Strieber has gone through and the, the plethora of people you probably have interviewed too and I... So mm -hmm. what is the explanation? Are they, and I asked this question to Dr. David Jacobs with the hybridization program, 
Are they trying to terraform this planet? Are they trying to find the perfect blend of human-alien hybrid in order to populate the planet? Well, Jacobs would tell you that there's a breeding program going on, and he's he is uh, very upset with it. Um, I don't want I can't put words in his mouth. I think the direct quote that we got from him was um, he is very alarmed by what he sees. I think he would agree to that. He's very alarmed by what he sees. He's certainly unsettled. And the word he uses specifically is despair. He's in despair at what he sees with the breeding program. From my standpoint and understanding ancient biblical text, ancient prophetic text, this all falls in line. We're told that that's exactly what, what we see happening is exactly what we were told would happen. So why am I, I'm not surprised, Mel. That's what, that's what cracks me up from my paradigm, my position. Oh, Jan, this is exactly what I expect to see, some kind of breeding program, because it happened in the days of Noah, and now it's happening again now. It's exactly, it's, it's like clockwork in my opinion, like clockwork. Well, I'm glad you're saying clockwork, because let me go back to my last talk with Zachariah Sitchin, when we discussed the dead zones around the world. One example is the Sinai Peninsula, almost like green glass. Do you think something happened there, perhaps a nuclear detonation? And if so, who were the parties fighting? And are we making the same mistakes all over again, and we wipe ourselves out again and again? No, I don't think that's the case. I think what, what the case is, is that these these fallen angels and I, I you know that term is just people they have preconceived notions which is why it's a bad term these entities who are warring with each other let's put it that way these entities who are warring with each other uh some are incredibly malevolent others are exactly the opposite but there's this war going on when i was at pumapunku with Brian Forrester, a good friend. And uh, I looked at the remains of Pumapunku, and something just blew that place up. Same thing with Oyotintambo uh, in Peru. And you're there, I'm there standing there and looking at all that remains of this, whatever it was. It's certainly not a temple. They call it the Temple of the Sun. It, it, you know, it wasn't a temple. It was some kind of machine. And we saw the rocks that were just blasted apart and, and many of them are on the valley floor, hundreds of feet below. Something very cataclysmic happened at these places, extremely cataclysmic happened. It'd be very interesting to do an archaeological dig at Sac Sebaman and see what, what lies beneath the stones that are there. Um, this is the handiwork and the technology. See, what's interesting about the smell is that we're really not that far apart, um, not you and me per se, but but let's say Giorgio Sukalos. If Giorgio and I were sitting in the room and you said, did, did, and you asked us a question like, Giorgio, L.A., who built Sac Sebamon? Did, did human beings build Sac Sebamon? Giorgio would go, of course not. And you go, L.A., and I would go, of course not. We agree. We agree. There's no way human beings built Sac Sebamon. Giorgio would, said, would say, probably extraterrestrial. And then I would, I would say tongue-in-cheek, Giorgio, I agree with you. In the classic sense, they are extraterrestrials because they don't reside here. They're not from here. So in the classic sense, they are extraterrestrial. They're not from here. But they're not, in my opinion, this is where we, 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 we part company. They're not from the Pleiades or the Reticuli or wherever. They are interdimensional beings. And they come here and they set up shop, as it were, 
and they dazzle humankind with their technology, and they are worshipped as gods. They are worshipped as gods, and that's what they're after. Chongo's Necropolis, and I'd like to discuss this later in the program, but let me just bring this up for a moment. Chongo's Necropolis used to be a lake, and then all of a sudden, according to oral tradition, boom, a UFO came along, and something happened that it dried the whole place. And there's so many dead, obviously, skeletons there, but was that a cemetery, or did a battle ensue there, or a killing field happen there? No, this is a rural cemetery, um, and it's been used by preceding cultures. We are in the process of trying to do a, a, a real archaeological dig at the Chongo site. There are several tombs there which have not been raided by the Wakaros, the tomb robbers. That place has been raided for the last 500 years. And um, there are, look, I was at a, with an archaeologist in the United States. Uh, he's had a dig site going for eight years. And uh, I spent two days at the tell, at the dig, and um, basically picking that poop out of pepper. We would take shovelfuls of sand, you know, the typical archaeological stuff, and <clears throat> there's a screen, a wire mesh in a box, and you, you know, take the dirt and you uh, and you screen it, and the dirt falls, and anything else that's, that's less than a quarter of an inch doesn't fall through. <coughs> Excuse me. And bits of bone and charcoal and uh, lots of flint were seen. And the big deal, of course, is when you find an arrowhead. Well, <clears throat> let me put my mute and get some water. Hold on, Mel. Sure. When you compare that with the Chongos Necropolis, when you're down there, and my first trip, Brian didn't tell us anything. Brian Forrester was our guide. Didn't tell us anything about what to expect. So I'm walking through this thing by myself. Brian's about 100 yards ahead of me. And I've looked down and I'm going, what's all this? And I, I bend over and it's like broken pottery shards at my feet everywhere I look. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. And then the next thing I notice is there's all these white objects. And I realize they're, they're human bone fragments. And there's mummy wrappings. And later on in the walk, I picked up a slingshot, which is a thousand years old, probably from the Wari culture. Bits of pottery from the Paracas, from the, uh, uh, the Inca. Uh, just unbelievable. And so that is such a, a, such a rich, but what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, the comparison between what's at Chongos, <clears throat> which is an open archaeological site thousands of years old, and what in, what was in Ohio, with all due respect, is still an archaeological site. There was still it was still fascinating to dig a fire pit, <clears throat> but there's no comparison between the two. Uh, the last time I was in Chongos, we actually we were walking out of out of the Chongos necropolis. Okay, and I go, what the heck is that? About a hundred yards in front of me looked like a Clorox bottle, but I said, is that like a skull? And as we got closer. Um, David Greenhill was with me and Brian Forrester and, and Senior Juan. And Brian took, we got closer and Brian immediately made a beeline up the hill. And we got to this, we got to the what 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 we thought at first was a Clorox bottle and turned out to be an elongated skull. And then Brian goes, It's up here. And we took the skull with us and we ran about 50 yards up the hill. And the uh, Wakaros, the grave robbers, had exhumed that from a very shallow grave, 
um, three skulls, all elongated. Um, one of them, one of them only had one sagittal or no sagittal suture and only one parietal plate. And those are now uh, with Senior Juan in his museum. Very shallow grave. Uh, that find is at the end of the Paracas culture, which is probably 2,000 years old. And, I mean, there it is. And that's what Chongos is about. And uh, we hope to, like I said, we hope to get uh, permits. There's several sites there which have not yet been excavated, and we really want to excavate them. Let me go back to Giants for a second. Why is there such a concerted effort to ridicule anyone who mentions that giants roamed the planet at one point in our history? We talk about dinosaurs and there are skeletons in almost every museum to prove it. Well, there are skeletons of giants to prove their existence too. What is the main reason why we don't see these skeletons that say, the Smithsonian? What is the purpose of this concerted effort to hide this important aspect of our history? Well, in my opinion, it goes back to that it, it look, <clears throat> The Darwinian paradigm is sacrosanct in academia <clears throat> and the scientific community. Um, that is the prevailing paradigm. That is what you're taught in school. That's the paradigm you cling to and hold to. If you want to have any type of uh, career or job, that is what you espouse, period. Uh, don't believe me. If you have not seen Ben Stein's, what I consider now a classic movie, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, may I suggest that you go out and rent the movie expelled, and you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, people are fired. They lose their tenure from universities for even yeah. mentioning mm -hmm. the idea of intelligent design. Darwinism is sacrosanct. Darwinism is the prevailing paradigm. Any type of religious affiliation, any type of belief in a creator or intelligent design is scoffed at, is laughed at. And yet, just like the movie Planet of the Apes in the very first movie where, oh, you can't go to the Forbidden Zone. You can't go there. That's exactly what we see, that they are, in my opinion, the Darwinists are terrified because, and this is why I'm on the trail, Mel. This goes back to the very first question. We find DNA evidence and we can prove and, and really get real DNA evidence, not like what Lloyd Pye had from his geneticist, but a whole trail and done the proper way with you know, all the legality and the whole deal, we can show that the mitochondrial DNA is different and doesn't match anything in the genome, then what? Then what? There's only two paradigms. There's only two possible solutions. One, well, one, let me put it this way. The only solution is there's an outside agency manipulating the genome. That outside agency can be two things, the extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings. Of course, I would hold to the interdimensional hypothesis. And therein lies the deal. And all of a sudden, Darwinism begins to just fold in on itself. It begins to collapse, fall of its own weight, because it's just a house of intellectual cards, in my opinion. When we look at the complexity of life and the, <clears throat> the oxyribonucleic DNA molecular structure, we realize, as I mentioned earlier, that this, in fact, um, goes back to the biblical narrative that everything will produce according to its own kind. That's written thousands and thousands of years ago. And that's exactly what we see. Salamanders don't become birds. Now, despite what the Darwinists insist happen, <clears throat> we don't see any species today evolving. We don't. Now, there's, there's little micro changes in all species. I get that. Is that evolution or is that just the species adapting? 
That's just whatever it is adapting, like the finch that Darwin says, oh, my gosh, it's got a bigger beak. Yeah, that's microevolution. I have no problem with that. But the finch is still a finch. The finch is not becoming a great grizzly bear. We don't see that happening. The finch doesn't wake up and somehow his DNA is altered, so he's growing paws. He's becoming a bear. doesn't work that way. <laughs> I asked somebody the other day, what came first, mind or matter? When you look at the universe, and I have a hard time believing that the Big Bang created this order that we see everywhere. And I think that DNA, of course, has to come from mind because you have this program, the proteins that, that uh, yes. create a symbiotic relationship be with, between our organs. I have a hard time believing that we just came from other, you know, the, 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 the apes and so on. But the Smithsonian Institute, are they gatekeepers or, or one of the gatekeepers of our true origins? And have they sequestered evidence of the Nephilim? And if so, what is the bottom line? What, why are they trying to hide this? Because if we find out the true origins of who we are, we become more powerful and the shatter and the paradigm shatters. Well, the, the, the Darwinian paradigm would certainly shatter. If, it, if this points out the Nephilim, which is that's why we're doing this. That's why I'm doing it. If I can show that the Nephilim were really here on the planet, uh, then that points back to the validity of the biblical narrative. Because that's 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 my hypothesis. That's what we're looking at, and all these different sites all over all over the world. We are looking at Nephilim, or what I would call fallen angel architecture, or Nephilim architecture. Now, all we have to do is change one word, and that's ancient astronaut to to right um, fallen angel. That's all. That's all I'm doing here. That's all I'm doing, and and we're on the same page, which which really cracks me up, you know, because we all know that when we go to Sacsayhuaman or Pumapunku or Stonehenge, or the Great Pyramid of Giza, there's no way this just happened. And I love, you know, these, these Egyptologists looking at like, you know, pyramid, 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 Zowie Hawass, with all due respect to Zowie. Oh, geez. Zowie, yeah. you can't float granite blocks that are above the king's chamber, quarried 500 miles from Aswan. You can't do it. You can't show me how it was done. We'd be hard-pressed to do it today, for crying out loud. And now they just found something else in Baalbek. You know, we've heard, oh, well, the stone of the pregnant woman, blah, blah, blah. Some archaeologists finally got the bright idea. I wonder if there's another one buried near it. And so they dug, and lo and behold, you know, a meter down, whatever it is, four or five, six feet below the stone of the pregnant woman, they find two more stones, and one of them is actually bigger than the stone of the pregnant woman, which may lead and blows out. There's a whole group of people that are trying to tell us that the Romans built this, and that the Romans actually put wheels on the ends of these huge megalithic stones and, and wheeled them up the ramp. That's how this one particular uh, gentleman uh, posits the stones removed. Well, I'm in the process of working with an engineer to show the absurdity of, of the feat. There's no way you could do this. It's an impossibility. Um, you'd have to have a titanium wheel. Titanium wasn't known in the ancient world. I mean, it's just, it's preposterous. But that's all these people hold to. If there's no supernatural paradigm, then they've got to have a rational explanation for it. In academia, the same way. Well, we think of the word Elohim, and people think, oh, that means God. No, the Hebrew word Elohim means gods in plural. But here's a quick parenthesis, and we have to take a one and only intermission and have a couple of thoughts. I'm sure you're aware of the Chinese pyramids, how the Chinese government yes. pays farmers to bury them That's and right. farm on top of them. That's right. Again, 
Is there any difference between what we're doing here in the Americas, in Mesoamerica? I was I tell this story all the time. When I was uh, I was sent to Mexico in my early days corporate job years ago in ninety two, ninety three, and I went to the the uh, cathedral in Mexico City. And right there they had this tarp next to the cathedral. And I, it said, do not cross, a big uh, yellow line, but I crossed anyway. So I opened the tarp, and I saw archaeologists unearthing a Mayan city. And that was the first time in my life that I realized and discovered that we put a lot of our structures on top of former religious or, or important monuments to forget, to make the population forget what was there before. It is the same thing happening with the giants. Are we completely erasing that? so that we don't even question our true origins. And the question to that is yes, or the answer to that is yes, absolutely. And when we come back, I want to tell you something about Dr. Roger Lear. This is something somebody told me, and I knew Roger, but he never told me this. A third party told me this after he died, but he said that he went to the Great Pyramid, and a tour guide took him to a specific area inside of the pyramid that not a lot of tourists go, and it was pitch black. They gave everybody... Uh, flashlights. And I'll tell you what he found on the way back, which, you know, Georgia Sukalos would be happy about what I'm about to say, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you when I come back. Now, how can people buy your books, learn more about your work, LA? Just go to the website, lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net, and you can uh, avail yourself of all sorts of resource material. I'm a trail of a Nephilim one, I'm a trail of a Nephilim volume two, which is really what we've been talking about today. Uh, these are oversized books, eight and a half by 11, full color photos. Um, and it, they're more like a coffee table book. You just open that puppy up and people start talking. And uh, the pictures are just, even without any of the text, the pictures alone are worth the price of admission. Absolutely. And I was just going to say that let me acknowledge my appreciation for you having included so many colored photographs and, and illustrations in the book. Sometimes I read books about ancient history that don't include a single illustration. And it's up to us, the reader, to imagine. But you have included lots of high resolution photographs and illustrations, including the Ralph Glidden collection, which is outstanding. That greatly helped me not only better understand, but it helps you support your claims. But a lot of this, much more. When we come back, folks, don't go anywhere. This is a fascinating talk with L.A. Marzulli. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, iUSB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.